Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome to the latest episode of the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and today, I never usually mention the date, but today is the 24th of April and today is the day that Lyra McKee will be buried in Belfast. Her funeral is going to take place. Uh, Lyra was a 29-year-old journalist. She was covering riots in Derry when some fucking idiot came around the corner, pointed a gun and started shooting wildly at the police. She was hit in the head. She was taken to the Altnagevin Hospital and her life couldn't be saved. I was in Dublin last week uh, for the, the National Union of Journalists Freelance Forum. It's a regular event held for freelance journalists. And uh, Jer Cunningham had invited me to talk, or uh, you know, I'd said I was gonna be there, and he said, oh, well, why don't you come along and talk about uh, getting paid and that kind of thing. And one of the things I brought up was security. And it's one of the things, if you've been listening to this podcast or paying attention to what I say on Twitter or in the media in general, for years I've been banging on about security for freelance journalists in particular. Staff journalists is one thing, but freelancers are even more exposed uh, to risks when it comes to reporting stories. So, you know, the freelance forum is a wonderful place to be. Uh, nice to meet so many colleagues and to talk about these things. But like everything else, you talk about them and you hope that people are aware of them. And then uh, not a whole lot happens. You know, previously I've said that I'd, you know, I'd happily run a basic self-defense course or basic first aid courses or basic security courses, but it's just, you just never get around to it. So on Friday morning, I'm sitting in Bewley's on Grafton Street with my family. Uh, we're heading off back to Stockholm. We've had a lovely week meeting people we haven't seen in a long time. And my phone was sort of lighting up and I was going, okay, try to ignore the phone, try to ignore the phone. It's family time and that kind of thing. And I went, I just can't now. I have to find out what's going on. And that was when I found out that Lyra had been killed the night before. And there's people that I know, journalists that I know, ask me what I think and what I know and, and these kinds of things. And you sort of sit there going, ah, you know, there's always the if-onlys. You know, why didn't we organise these courses? Why didn't we, we speak to people? Why didn't we make it more common knowledge, you know? You know, the, before I say anything about the situation at all, the, the responsibility for killing Lyra McKee for taking her life lies solely with the fucking idiot who pointed that gun and fired, not not necessarily indiscriminately, because they were very, very careful about who they were firing at. They were firing at the police. They're not going to fire at other people who live in the, in the Craig, and or so they thought, but they were firing towards the police lines, and therefore anybody who was on the police lines was an enemy. Now, in the cold light of day, without blaming victims or without blaming anybody who's standing there, um, what's the sensible thing to do in that situation? For me, it's, you know, I've said before on this podcast, I never stand beside the police. In fact, I stand on the opposite side. And there are several reasons for that. One is because the police's story about any event is always going to come out, right? They have a huge apparatus, PR advisors, they have a press office, they have all these things, their stuff is going to come out. Whereas if you're standing on the opposite side, uh, it's not necessarily going to happen. Now, Northern Ireland is something of an exception to this rule, but you can also usually expect uh, the the armed forces not to fire indiscriminately into pe into uh, masses of people. Now, I fully appreciate the irony of saying that about the city where Bloody Sunday took place, but as a rule, that lesson has kind of been learned, and the RUC, or they're not called the RUC, the, Nor the police service in Northern Ireland, are not going to go firing into that bunch of people 
no, certainly not without some form of fair warning. You're going to see an escalation there, you know. So if it was me, um, I probably wouldn't have been standing where Lira was standing. I probably would have taken myself as far away from the police as possible, especially when people are throwing petrol bombs and this kind of thing, you know. Again, I know very, very little about the situation. I don't know exactly where she was standing. She could have been standing in a perfectly legitimate spot. And let's face it, anybody doing journalism is standing in a perfectly legitimate spot. You just do not expect savages to come out with guns like that and start shooting them. So uh, I'm sitting in Bewley's and my daughter says to me, uh, you know, if somebody hasn't died, you can put your phone away, you know, because usually being a journalist, you're on your phone the whole lot, you're, you're catching up on news, you're messaging people and that kind of thing. And I said, well, somebody has died. And there was a sort of a silence that descended on the table in Bewley's uh, as I sort of went through the contacts and tried to reply to the messages that I got. And the thing that strikes you in a situation like this, and it's happened to me before, I mean, colleagues that I've worked for, with for Reuters around the world uh, have been killed and they've been injured. Um, and it's the finality of what happens, you know, because regardless of how the situation develops, there's no going back. There's no raising that person from the dead. The if onlys are all over the place, but the if onlys are not going to bring that person back. And particularly in the case of Lyra McKee, it's so terribly, terribly tragic. Now, it's never good for any journalist to lose their lives. It's never good for anybody to lose their lives in such a situation. But the sheer coincidence of this one random fucking idiot shooting one of the most promising journalists on the island of Ireland. Uh, I mean, you know, to call her 29, she was an adult woman, you know, to call her promising uh, is almost a sort of an insult in itself. But, you know, one of the most well-known, one of the most hard-hitting in her own way. And I don't mean that she was mean, I just mean that, you know, what she wrote had an enormous effect on the people who read it. Her letter to her 14-year-old self went uh, uh, went viral about growing up gay in Belfast and not knowing and not being comfortable and trying to tell her mother and come out. It went uh, viral because it was such a perfect encapsulation of the feelings of people who are otherwise not represented in the media. You didn't see voices like, or hear voices like Lyra's in the media at all in Ireland. You you didn't, gay people didn't write, and they didn't write like that. So when she originally arrived on the scene, uh, it was, you know, to massive effect. And not only that, that, you know, uh, we talk about the way that, you know, her voice and the story that she told and how unique it was and that kind of thing. But it was also, it was so different. Her writing was so good and so powerful and so overwhelming. And her ability to go and find a story that was human and representative and that held up a mirror to the society that she lived in she and she covered was absolutely unparalleled you can talk about paramilitaries and you can talk about the peace dividend and you can talk about the good friday agreement and god knows we've done it lately you can talk about brexit but when she identified the fact that more people have died by suicide after the end of the troubles than died during the whole period of the troubles that in itself was just the most amazing two-line pitch even if you never read the article, you go, whoa, that is somebody who has thought about this, who has noticed this, who has studied this phenomenon, who has seen it happen around her, and who has decided that this is such a big thing that somebody needs to talk about it or to write about it or to do something about it. Um, luckily, there were editors who recognised that, not necessarily in Ireland, but uh, there were editors in Ireland that recognised her. But people around the world, at the likes of the Atlantic and these kind of things, they realised, and at Faber and Faber, the publisher had signed her uh, to, to write two books, they realised that this was something absolutely powerful and unique. And as I say, just the randomness of some fucking idiot 
uh, snuffing that out in, in a matter of seconds in you know some sort of show of of strength or bravado or toxic masculinity or whatever it is you want to call it and to take that away from the world is absolutely heinous uh, what can we learn from our death i suppose for me the primary thing is always to do with the safety of journalists and to p- people who are out in the field reporting on these things right um i've done the hostile environment training courses i've been lucky enough to have uh, somebody that i work for pay for one of these very very expensive courses ironically run by two guys from northern ireland who had been part of the defense forces up there and it was very very thorough it was very very good the advice or the or the, so the science or the thinking behind it was absolutely incredible everything from how uh, a group of people acts in a civil disturbance right the, the the mob mentality that takes over what's necessary for it to keep going and how it finishes all these kinds of things they were absolutely brilliant at those things because uh, of the irony again was that you know of all places northern ireland has seen plenty of these things um we were taught about first aid we we're taught about how to deal with gunshot wounds we were talking about the kind of kit that you need uh, to survive or to stay safe in such an area now a lot of that i've been to many places i've covered many riots i've i've been in, in dangerous situations before um i've always had a hotel room somewhere nearby with a bulletproof vest and with helmets and that kind of thing and it sounds very dramatic and it is very dramatic um i don't tend to wear them unless the situation is very very extreme um for the most part i have never been in a situation where you could expect live fire from large caliber bullets right so i've been in situations where you could expect fire from pistols and that kind of thing so at the absolute most i'd wear what's usually called a stab vest right so there's no metal plates in it it's much more sort of a padded affair but it will stop sort of small caliber bullets the kind of things that come from a small handgun now it's not going to stop a 44 magnum because very little will but um if you wear that kind of thing, it's it's unlikely that you know small caliber bullet from a pistol is going to is going to hit you in a sort of a vital organ or that kind of thing. Um, I've had their advice about wearing helmets and that because sometimes it doesn't really matter what kind of a helmet you wear. Uh, the the ability to deflect a bullet or that kind of thing is going to is going to help as well. You know, it's going to uh, do less damage. But of course, you know, the the advice would be from a lot of these security people is basically to sit inside a tank where you can't be hit by anything. But failing that, wear your bulletproof vest, wear your uh, your steel helmet and that kind of thing, and stay out of the goddamn way of uh, of people who are shooting these things. But that's not always practical. And again, in some situations that I've been in, it's very hard to move in these things. If you're wearing a bulletproof vest that has full armor plating in it and that kind of thing, it's very, very heavy. Uh, it makes it very, very sweaty. And for some reason, I've never been in one of those situations when it's minus 20 outside. It's always been where it's 15, 20, 25 degrees. So you make a judgment. And I've made bad judgments on that front. I've left the bulletproof vest in the hotel room and said, oh, it'll be fine. You know, if the gas mask fits, you know, that'll protect you against tear gas and other things. If that fits in the bag, then fine. Or you might, you know, it's not the kind of thing you want to hang off uh, the strap of your bag either because it's an indication that you're kind of looking for trouble. Also, if you're wearing a helmet, uh, in a situation where rioting is going on it can make you look like a cop i've been chased once during a riot because i realized that i was wearing all black uh, and i was carrying a microphone and that does make you look like some sort of a you know i, do, I wouldn't wear one of those press vests to save my life because i just think that it attracts the wrong sort of element especially if you stand where i tend to stand in civil disturbances you don't want to attract any uh, attention whatsoever and one of the things i've learned over the years is just use your phone just you know don't bother taking out a big video camera um, get get a phone use the headset or something that looks like the regular headset that you plug into an android phone use that to record your audio 
and do that you know it's it's really really easy to do nowadays you know to be discreet about it now you're you're gonna have difficulty in terms of camera shake and that kind of thing but i would much rather go in there with a little less kit and not be as obtrusive uh, i'd much rather do that rather than go in with a video camera now one of the other stories that has come out about lira's death is that mtv were up there filming at the time and I was looking at that as if that was, you know, uh, as if they in some way would bear some part of the blame for inciting this kind of thing. Now, absolutely, absolutely, when the TV cameras come out and young men, almost always young men, uh, start rioting and throwing things and burning things, there is a thing about doing it for the camera. The, like, some of them do want to stick on a mask and be caught on camera doing that because they'll recognise themselves and they'll be able to point it out to their friends. Their friends will recognise it for their T-shirt or their shoes or whatever else. And it's a cool thing. So it's a very, very fine line to draw there. If there is a story there and you're going there to make it, you don't want to add to the disturbance. You don't want your camera to be seen as, you know, pouring petrol on the fire, so to speak. So sometimes you have a responsibility not to film these guys, to turn away. I remember um, when the riots happened here in Husby in Sweden a few years ago. Now, that was a place where I felt very safe because this was an area that I knew well. Uh, a lot of the people there I would have known well. I've played soccer here in, in this part of Stockholm for God knows how long. You know, I've known all these kids growing up and that kind of thing. And some of them wore masks and they went and they did what they did and that was the end of it. But there was one guy uh, at the time, you know, when the older people around the place, me included after reporting on it, were saying to them, look at you need to go home. You have a job. You have school to do. You have things that you have to be looking after. And one guy absolutely swore blind to me that he wasn't involved in the rioting at all. And then a few months later, when a TV program came out, one of those sort of you know news, in-depth news TV programs, they showed this um, a closed-circuit TV footage or security camera footage, and there he was wearing a very specific top that I knew that he has, and you just know by the way he runs, the way he carries himself, that that was him, you know. Now he never said I confirmed that to me, but we both know that that was him who was in there. So there is this thing of playing up to the cameras, but that said, you know. Uh, again, we can't lay the blame at the door of anybody other than the person who pulled the trigger and the people who put the gun in that kid's hands. Um, again, to get back to what we learned about it, freelance journalists, we have to find a way to teach freelance journalists about these things, right? And it ultimately comes down to money. They don't have the money themselves to build up the required safety kit because people won't pay them enough. We One of the things I talked about at the freelance forum was how much journalists get paid per story and that kind of thing. And myself and the other contributor were saying, lads, you got to think an awful lot higher than what you're doing at the moment. So say you sit down, you write 400 words uh, for an Irish newspaper and they pay you 150 euros or 200 euros. It's not enough, right? Because if they're expecting you to have a phone, a mobile phone, a car... They're expecting you to put petrol or diesel in that car. They're expecting you uh, to put your hours in, to make the calls, to do the research, to sit down and to write everything down and to check your facts and to send that on. And then, you know, it's just, it's worth far, far more than that. If you're a staff journalist, these things are factored in. Your pension is factored in. Your holidays are factored in. Your health insurance might be factored in. So all these other things come into play that freelance journalists don't think of. Uh, your security kit comes into play. Right? Your editor has a much greater responsibility for you as a staff journalist in the same way that they would on a factory floor. If you're an employee in a factory floor, their sa your safety is their paramount responsibility. But the same thing doesn't exist uh, for, for freelance staff who just come in and go. They just seem to think that, oh, well, you know, whatever risks they take, that's fine, right? So 
in terms of training freelance journalists in how they should act in hostile environments, that's a resource thing because they can't pay for the courses themselves. They often can't pay for the insurances and they certainly can't pay uh, for bulletproof vests or the kind of kit that they would need. So there's a two-pronged approach that needs to be, and I'll do one of them, right? I'll, I'll certainly stage a course in Dublin in the near future for freelance journalists only who can't afford it, right? I'll get a room somewhere and I'll go in there and I'll tell them what I know. And then I'll bring them out to a martial arts gym and I'll go through basic self-defense. And the whole point of it is going to be to say to people, look, at you cannot do these things on your own. You cannot simply walk into any riot or any civil disturbance or any dangerous situation. You cannot go, uh, you know, to Kurdish-held areas in the Middle East and just expect that you're going to be safe there. You need to build up things. You need to practice martial arts or self-defense for two, three, four years before you're proficient enough. You need to be physically fit. You need to have health insurance. You need to have people you can contact in the event that you're abroad and something goes wrong. You need to have people you can contact in the event that you're working in Ireland or the UK or France in the event that things go wrong. This support network is what you need, but you absolutely need the fundamentals of it. Another thing we need to do is we need to educate editors so that when I call up or when I mail and I say I'm in Aleppo, right, and I can send you this, this, this and this. And what the editor needs to do there is two things. The first thing they need to do is go, okay, he's in Aleppo. This is going to cost me more than the usual 200 euros or whatever I would pay for an article because it's expensive to be in Aleppo. He's, he doesn't speak Arabic, he's going to need a translator, so that's another 50 euros a day, whatever it happens to be, right? That's the first thing. They need to understand the economics of a freelancer being out there because if a freelancer sells the same thing to five different people, you know, okay, they might be making a grand a day, but that's extremely stressful, right? And it's also not worth it. And this is why so many areas of the world are what uh, my friend Martin Shibia calls blank spots. This is why we don't know about these things, because they won't invest the money in it to do it properly, right? So the first thing editors need to do is to think of, okay, how can I make sure that this person gets paid properly? But even before that, the even greater responsibility is to keep that freelance journalist safe. So the first thing any editor should be saying when any of those situations arises is I don't want you to take any risks that will put you in physical danger, right? Now, that's not going to guarantee that they won't do it, right? I know I will, I won't ignore it, right? But I will make my own judgment based on the situation. But it's always nice to know uh, for the, in the first instance that the editor is thinking about me and my safety but it's also nice to know that okay they have a limit here they are not going to take pictures that I risk my life to get so that's one of those things as well that I'm going to have to take into account and say okay if I can get a picture from a distance uh, is that going to work how how much closer do I have to need how much closer do I have to be rather than running right into the middle of something and risking everything for that one picture because you know one of the first things that you ever get told on these uh, security courses and hostile environment courses is and one of the first things any decent editor will tell you is that no story no story is worth your life no story is worth spending a year in hospital for losing a limb for losing an eye for it's just not worth it at the end of the day uh, when people stand around uh, at your wake and say oh you know what a great guy he was and they'll talk about the great stories that you did but ultimately they would prefer for you to be there in the aftermath right if this is how it went down they would prefer for you to have survived and for the story have never ma made it out there at all so that's what you'd want editors to think of and um, another thing that we need to think of going forward 
uh, or as we sort of see, I've had a really hard time with this week because you know I have a, a an interview with Pat O'Mahony about making radio in the bag that we did. I think it was last Wednesday and that kind of thing. And I was supposed to edit that and put it out there and check the sound quality. We did it outdoors because it was pretty cool sitting outside, having a coffee and, and you know trying to create a bit of an atmosphere because both of us love radio. But I've been sitting there with that in the can all week and I just I haven't had the the energy or the interest because I've been sort of consumed by the the darkness of Lira's passing. It's just, it's been really, really hard to find the motivation to do these things. And then it struck me that the best way to honour her and her life and her work is to continue and to try to make the kind of journalism, the kind of clever, intelligent, passionate journalism that she made. And we don't just do this by ourselves, right? So it's not, I'm not saying to journalists listening, you go be like her. No, I'm saying... Go find the voices like hers, right? Because she was brilliant, but she wasn't a unicorn, right? There are so many people out there, gay people, uh, trans people who are out there, who can talk uh, with authority on these issues. And we've had a recent uh, story about some book that was written by some clown who uh, created a trans character without ever consulting with trans people. And, you know, this kind of thing. Why not let those people speak? Why not include their perspective? Why must we always sort of stand up on our soapbox and pretend that after a quick Google search, we know more about these things than the people who actually have lived experience of them? So if there's one thing that I'm going to want to try to do in the in the wake of Lyra's death, is I'm going to go back to what I, I used to do a lot of a long time ago. Uh, well, not necessarily a long time ago, but I'm going to be asking myself, who is not being heard in the media? What stories are not being told? What angles on those stories are not being taken up? Uh, who is being talked about, but never to? And all of these questions when you start to ask all these questions firstly you make yourself redundant okay you take yourself completely out of the story and it changes the way you approach things editorially right it changes how you put your stories together so what you don't do is you don't accept the narrative that comes from an official body right it could be a non-governmental organization it could be a ministry it could be a charity it could be whatever else if you go straight to the heart of these issues and describe the human experience behind them ngos are always going to talk police are always going to talk ministers and politicians are always going to talk right but we have the ability to go and find these voices like leaders and to give them a platform and not to put them up against somebody who denies their existence or who denies their lived experience or who denigrates them for who they are and for wanting to tell us who they are. No, step back, give them the canvas, let them do it because that was the legacy and that is the legacy of Lyra McKee. Not only did she say, this is my story and I'm going to tell it, she told other people by her actions that your stories also have value and that they can also be told in this way and that they can also contribute to the discourse and to the society and to the change that we're trying to build. But ultimately, in finding those voices, we are going to meet with some resistance. We're going to meet with this tiny, tiny minority of clowns who are still fighting a war that finished, some would say, almost 100 years ago, as quickly as it began. Again, you need to stress that uh, these guys have no, re they, they don't represent anybody and you know, nobody else bears any responsibility for anything that happens other than these guys themselves. But what I would say is that if you're surprised 
and this is again towards journalists and editors if you're surprised by what is happening in Derry if you're surprised by what is happening in Sri Lanka if you're surprised by any of these things then I usually say that you haven't been paying attention right you haven't been listening you haven't got the people in your office or in your networks who can explain them to you right the only way to keep on top of stories like this is to maintain networks in these communities, right? Whether it be, if you're writing about fundamentalist Islam or radical Islam or that kind of thing, there's no point in just being out there on whatever, the gates of Vienna or or reading Breitbart and thinking that this is some sort of info. No, you have to go and talk to people. You have to go and talk to people who you may not otherwise want to talk to, people that you don't disagree with. I'm no fan of religion, but in order to maintain contact with these people, I have to speak to religious people I have to be respectful towards the fact that they believe something that I don't believe in I don't have to respect their actions in Derry what seems to have happened is you know if if we're surprised again that distant Republicans have such a hold over uh, people in the Craig and the Bogside and people in other areas of the city then we haven't been paying attention now this is not probably not the time to be making the points about class and the issue of class and, the, and the, the fact that the peace dividend hasn't paid out pretty much anywhere in working class Northern Ireland. Both loyalists and Republicans are very disappointed with the lack of opportunity that's come out of this. That's part of a, a broader picture of austerity. That's part of a broader picture of politics, which is not just in the UK or in Ireland. That's a global thing at the moment. The lack of opportunity being afforded to people who are at the bottom of society, if you like. Again, if, if you haven't noticed the correlation between these acts of violence and between the rise of extremism in all its forms, you haven't been pay, paying attention. So to finish up, for editors and journalists, maintain your networks. Go find people whose lived experience is this. Let them write about it. Let them talk about it. But maintain your contact with them so that when these things happen, you don't have to accept them, but you can try to understand them. And as it was with Lyra McKee, no story, no story is worth any journalist or anybody else losing their life over. Rest in peace, Lyra. You've been an inspiration to me and to many others. And if we have nothing else, at least we have your memory and the brilliant work that you left behind.